This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. This is Episode 2 of the Recorded Future podcast. Today, we're going to talk about threat intelligence feeds, what they are, how to select the right ones, how to separate the signal from the noise and turn streams of raw information into actionable intelligence. Joining me is Matt Kodama, Vice President of Products at Recorded Future. To start our conversation, I ask Matt to give us the basics and help us understand threat intelligence feeds. One of the challenges is that these things don't really have any you know, proper standards definition. They tend to be lists of technical information. They're structured to be read by a machine. They're usually produced by a machine, some sort of scanning or detection technique. Um, and what they usually are is sort of a header that says, this is what this list is about. You know, maybe it's a command and control infrastructure for some particular malware family, or maybe it's um, URLs where there's been a, a fish reported recently. Um, and then the technical values. And sometimes that's all you get. You know, it's going to be essentially a bare list of IP addresses with some context information around what this list is. Other times it's going to be more like a data table. You know, you'll have not just the the, the head value. You know, like to take the phishing example, you might get the uh, the phishing URL, but you might also get the IP address that it resolved to. And you might get the uh, timestamp that whoever is reporting the information observed that that particular URL resolved, you know, that when the DNS name resolved, it resolved to that IP. So, you know, some threat feeds have a, a lot of columns and some have only one. It's a pretty broad spectrum. But of course, the point of this is somebody's out there seeing suspicious or malicious activity, you know, and thankfully, what they're doing is they're setting up some automation to report that out to the rest of the world so that everybody else can get, you know, some security or, or threat intelligence advantage out of that information. Are most of the feeds out there uh, provided for free? Do you have to pay for them? It's a mix. There's a lot that are out there for free. And if I wanted to be snarky, I guess I could say they're free and, and worth it. Um, <laughs> but that's actually not true. Actually, them, a lot of them are quite good. I think the challenge is, though, if you think about what's going to be hard in putting together a feed, part of it is sort of the software or service development hard. You know, are you going to just put a file out there and say, you know, hey, you can stat the file and download it? Or are you going to provide some sort of interfaces so it can be, you know, more easily pulled through software that reads a web service or through some sort of standard. And then the other hard parts is, okay, so you see something suspicious. How sure are you that it's not a false positive? Or maybe you see something suspicious through your method at time zero, but then it gets cleaned up. How sure are you that you're going to see the fact that it gets cleaned up through your method also? So, you know, are you actually even able to age things out uh, from the list or, or do you? And, and here's where I think the, you get to the rub. A lot of that stuff is pretty darn hard. And the person who's putting a free threat feed out there, I mean, usually they're, they're doing it out of personal interest or it's derivative from their main job. Or, and it's great that they're putting that information out there, but they just don't have time to work through all the rest of that hard stuff. So what you get you know, with a lot of the community threat feeds, the things that are free, is that you know, often they're, they're good information, but they don't have the whole rest of that work done around making it easy to consume and making it easy for you as the consumer to understand how long should you keep the information around. Take us through the process of how someone should go about evaluating what kind of feeds they'd want to use. Yeah, that's a tricky one. I think you have to start with thinking about what's at risk because there's so many things out there. It doesn't make any sense to just go out there and say, why don't I take a census and grab you know, a sample of everything that's available and, uh, and start to do something, you know, in, in, in that kind of an approach. You're just never, you're never going to finish. 
And the, the truth of it is that a lot of those feeds are very important for somebody else, but not at all important to you because the risks that we're exposed to in different organizations are so different. So I think, you know, the starting point has got to be thinking about, you know, what types of risks you're trying to defend yourself against. The feeds tend to be about technical topics. So then you're going to come into, okay, if this is what I'm worried about, what type of malware tool or what type of, you know, attack vector or intrusion method, how is that going to manifest in ways that I could detect it technically and use security controls to block it? And then, you know, once I'm there, now I can go out there and look more systematically around, okay, if I feel I'm very exposed to, you know, ransomware or botnets or remote access Trojans or you know, their, their feeds or, or phishing, I mean, who's not exposed to phishing, then you can be more specific around what you're looking for. Now, then you get into the next part of it. And I, I hear I have to um, give, give uh, some props out to Alex Pinto, who I know anybody who's looked at this stuff is going to be familiar with the stuff he's done around more quantitative or statistical analysis. Because there, there is, then you get to the point where you say, okay, so let's say I'm interested in um, infrastructure and botnet infections. Um, there's a lot. Some of them are pretty static. Some of them have a very high turnover rate. Some of them are cumulative. Things go onto the list. They never come off. It turns out that a lot of them don't have that much intersection. The underlying scanning method or detection method is, is, is pretty different than what other people are doing. So they, they see different infrastructure. So you can go through a big data analysis process. And Alex has talked about you know, work that he and his research has done and the kind of quantitative results that he gets. Um, the punchline at the end of it is that if you want to get good coverage, you're going to need a lot of feeds because there's not like one or two feeds that are the, the master feeds and all the others are redundant. It would be nice if it was that way because it would make our jobs easier, but it, it actually isn't like that. It seems like you have a signal-to-noise problem, a, sort of an information overload problem. How do you then uh, filter all of the incoming feeds so that you're not chasing your own tail? I think you're absolutely right that that's one of the key problems. You know, one of the methods that a lot of practitioners talk about is, is basically quantifying the, the hit rate and then saying, so if I bring a feed into my environment, and obviously I'm not going to bring in some data stream and suddenly start, you know, turn it into a blocking control rule. That would be that would be madness. But let's say I bring it in and run it and feed it into some sort of detect, you know, control rule. And then I look at, you know, how many detections do I actually get? How many of them turn out to be true incidents versus their correct rule matches, but they aren't indicative of any incident or malicious activity? And then I sort of score that, right? Now, if you've got a mature process around those types of correlations and alarms and being able to track outcomes and so forth, then that's terrific. I mean, now you're in a position where you can bring in information, you know, threat feed style information, pretty rapidly get a sense of how effective it is. And if it is great, and if it isn't, rotate it out. I tend to think that there are not a lot of people, you know, who are at that level of automation and sophistication in those processes. So, you know, it's great if you're there, but if you're not, what do you do then? Then I think the, looking at it from absolutely the other end of the spectrum, you can just look at the data. Some of these things update, you know, minute to minute or hour to hour, but whatever their tempo is, you know, sample it over a period of time so you can see how it changes and then figure out, does this thing change size dramatically? You know, is it uh, twice as big one day and then much smaller the next? And that's, that's normal. You know, again, some of them are actually cumulative lists. Things go onto it and they never come off. But when you just look at the, you know, the web page from the folks on the project who are publishing it, it's often very unclear. So you can start from that and just do some very, very simple, I hesitate to call them even analytics because we're really just talking about, you know, counts and frequencies and diffs to get a sense of what, what you're looking at there. And then you can do sort of like a one-time, you know, everybody's got some data set around their historical arms or artifacts and their incidents that turned out to be the malicious infrastructure involved in those incidents. So you can correlate it against things that are known bad from your history to say, like, let's say that I had had this in place in the past. 
what type of uh, detection rate around you know useful incidents what I what I have achieved. So that's another way to go after it. That's um, you know, it's pretty low tech and less effort. In this case, we're not really talking about bang for the buck in terms of buying the data, but we're talking about bang for the buck in terms of how much of your time you're going to have to spend putting it into into operational use. So let's talk about the difference between you know data that you get over a feed, information, and transitioning that information into being true intelligence. I think I think that question gets to something really important, which is there's a distinction between threat data, or really just you know data about some sort of suspicious or malicious infrastructure. And then coming up a level to, if we want to think of it as information, I need to know a little bit more about, you know, who's publishing it and uh, what types of of, uh, risks or threats it's likely to to give me uh, a window into, um, to have it structured so that I can actually apply it to, you know, my my workflows in security and intel. By the time we're going to actually call it intelligence, there has to be a lot of context around not just what this incoming information is, but how it relates to me. Because at Intel, I'm saying I'm actually knowledgeable enough through this this data and information to make a determination. And when I get when I get a hit on this, that's actually indicative of an infection or an intrusion or some communication out to get control information or even to exfiltrate data. So it's a whole different level. And I think that's where the the rub comes in. The data that you get in threat feeds is really useful. But it's at the bottom of that value pyramid of building your way up from data to information to intelligence to security actions. Describe to me the process of how people can go about designing custom feeds. The hard way that you can go about this is to really deep dive into, you know, feed number one, then feed number two, feed number three, and so forth. You certainly can do it. One of the challenges is that the, the space of what feeds exist out there is actually pretty fluid. You know, the, whatever the underlying scanning method is or whatever the you know, detection method is that generates the feed might stop working because, you know, the bad guys get a vote, too. Maybe they stop doing whatever it was they were doing that, you know, made them uh, susceptible to that detection method. Maybe, you know, the group that's operating the feed, they decide to shut down or merge into something else and the, the feed just goes away. And, you know, new ones are constantly popping up. So, you know, the shelf life on your time spent deep diving a particular feed, you may not get paid back. The other approach that you can take is to say the old advice used to be before we all had um, GPS that if you were, you know, in a place that you didn't know and you're trying to get directions that you'd ask, you know, two, three, four people. And when you started to get enough people saying the same thing to you in terms of, you know, street directions to get to a place, now it was sufficiently trustworthy and credible, even though they're all strangers, that you say, okay, well, I'm going to walk and I'm going to follow those directions and be confident I get where I'm, I'm going. That's the other approach that you could say. You know, if I'm bringing in a larger number of feeds, none of them have I given the complete examination to, but also none of them are completely junk, right? I know that none of them are sort of just a a whole lot of false positives cumulatively forever. Now, if I'm seeing, if I'm correlating those feeds together and saying, I'm seeing the same piece of infrastructure observed across multiple feeds. Now, I don't necessarily know a ton about their methods. Some of them give me almost no context. Others give me more, but I can have higher confidence in the, you know, the sort of the intersection of all of those. And I think that when you talk about making a custom feed, if you take those sorts of approaches, right, now I've got a lot richer context by joining them all together that I've actually got some ways to select down and say, I don't really care about every ransomware under the sun, but I care about these three or four families a whole lot. And you can also use the multiple points of observations. You know, it's not the type of confidence that you would get from an, a human analyst looking at the data and really, you know, validating it with their eyeballs and their brain. You know, it's still a useful confidence metric, even though it's just coming from, you know, unattended compute. Those are the ways that you can work towards starting out with primary collection of this raw threat data and get to where you have essentially a custom composite feed that you've built for yourself. 
and can have you know a, a good level of confidence that you can sort of not set it and forget it, let it run forever. But on a day-to-day basis, you're not going to have to be watching the, the, the flow of indicators because you've got more important things to do. Is this something that you'll run and look in on from time to time to make sure you know that it's still in good shape and tune it out? For someone who's starting up on this journey, for someone who's just getting started, you know, figuring out how feeds are going to work into their system and into their uh, defensive strategy, what would your advice be? I think my advice would be to start out with some of the feeds that are of moderate volume um, that you can tell from comparing them to your historic incidents are things that you would care about, but you don't already have complete coverage for. Because if you can identify data like that, and it'll take a little while, but you can, and then start to bring that into your security workflows, then part of the challenge with this thing is figuring out how you get from soup to nuts, right? You can get data externally, this type of threat feed data or risk list data, whatever you want to call it. And you know, there are places you can get, get some of it free, you can get some of it commercially. But then figuring out how you're going to bring it into your environment and fit it into either you know, detection or intelligence workflows and get it all the way out to where it's actually driving useful security actions, that's the work that you got to puzzle through. Now, once you're there, now you're in a place to start scaling up and saying, do I need more feeds, bigger feeds, feeds with more context, feeds with coverage into areas that I have no insight around? But you know, when I source that additional data or information into my organization, now it's actually going to have a useful security effect. Otherwise, you've got a whole lot of stuff sitting on the doorstep and you're still not clear how you're going to turn you know, information into action. My thanks to Matt Kodama for joining us today. Before we let you go, don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, and every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web, cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, and suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. You can also find more intelligence analysis at recordedfuture.com slash blog. We hope you've enjoyed this show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McCone, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner from The Cyberwire. Thanks for listening. (music) 